Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris. I'm Rachel Kapelkidale. I'm Nafkote Tamrat. Uh, and I'm Chris Newmans. And this week, we're delighted to have with us a very special guest star, Sitania Diggers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've clearly put some investment into our sound effects. Yeah, (laughs) the last episode. We're filming in front of a live studio audience, (laughs) and it is, wow, a resounding success here in Times Square. Uh I am so happy to say that I did not die of movie consumption, um, which, as we know, is like the 100% fatal illness. And you had it pretty bad. You had it pretty bad. I had it pretty bad, but I got those cameras out of there, which finally allowed me to But I was really proud of you that you kept dancing. Yeah. At the worst moments of your consumption, <laughs> right? You right. did those lifts, those holds. You right. won you and McGregor's heart. Like, yeah, was, right. Yeah. You know, but meanwhile, I did signal to everybody that I was dying of consumption through my <clears throat> into the handkerchief. Of course, and then <gasps> you're a lady. It's blood. It's blood. Right. No. <sighs> so, with all of that said, I'm alive. And we're so excited that Sutanya is here. <laughs> and I'll celebrate. And I'm sure you're all excited that we're not going to be talking about Moulin Rouge, the cinematic masterpiece of my life, despite our constant call, my constant callbacks to it, really. <laughs> so keep an eye out for Navkutu's spinoff podcast, Moulin Rouge, question mark. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever loved a movie this much before. <laughs> So Sutanya is somebody that um, Naf and I just knew through different routes, actually, because uh, the Anglophone community in Paris is uh, only four people now Literally. entirely in this yep. room. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, she's got a really interesting background. So um, I will be um, presenting you with Sutanya's very impressive bio. Uh, Sutanya Dakers is a New Yorker living in Paris. She is the author of the memoir, Dinner for One, How Cooking in Paris Saved Me. She's also a dinner party enthusiast and unofficial ambassador of Paris's best arrondissement, the 18th. And let me just say, thank you so much for welcoming me as the ambassador to the 18th. I love every moment of it. <laughs> I didn't expect the ticker tape parade. It was so crazy. Um, thank you. I do what I can. Yeah. I can. <clears throat> and as, as the unofficial ambassador, yeah. would love to know, how did you come to Paris? How did I come to Before Paris? we even get to love in Paris, well, how did you just arrive here first? My story has a little bit to do with love. So I met a very beautiful French man at a bar in New York City the night before he was going back to Paris. I didn't want to go out that night. My friend Audrey peer pressure me to going. I easily succumb to peer pressure. <laughs> meet this French guy at the bar. Um, I wouldn't say it was a little bit first sight, but it was definitely curiosity at first sight. And we were, I was, yeah. Ooh, familiar, familiar. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it was back in the day when PFAS used Facebook Messenger. So we started chatting on Facebook and then started emailing each other, blah, 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 blah. Long story less long, <laughs> I come to Paris. We, Pretty much, you know, like, do we love each other? And then we start this crazy long distance relationship between Paris and New York for three years. And then we get married. And then we get divorced. (laughs) Um, It is less long. (laughs) (laughs) And then, but I really fell in love with Paris and I decided to stay. So I've been here since. So that was in, I moved here in 2013. Now it's 2023. And in between all that, it's been divorce, rebuilding myself. Yada, yada, yada. But I will say that 
the reason why I asked was not for you to relive a potentially painful yeah, memory. Um, but it, it's okay. But it is because <laughs> you have an amazing podcast yeah. that I've listened to religiously, yeah. and Thank you. it's an excellent um, and an incredible book that was spawned from it. Exactly. So the memoir comes from, from the, the podcast. podcast. Yeah. Um, so you can tell us a little bit more about the podcast. So I started this podcast. My podcast is called Dinner for One, and I started this podcast in 2018 after. A long journey of debauchery. <laughs> That's like, the best kind of debauchery. <laughs> journey. <laughs> and uh, something happens in the book, which I won't share because you need to buy it and read it. Something happens, so I just kind of like wake up and I'm like, whoa, like this is not your life. Um, so you need to find a project that is not going out and drinking with your friends and meeting French men on dating apps and Wait, do we need to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Is this my (laughs) condition? I don't like it. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. Uh, And so, um, uh, how can I make this? Because I can be really long-winded about this. So, I need a project. I need something to do. And one of the hardest things for me to do post-divorce was cook for myself because me and my ex-husband are big dinner party people and we love having people over and we love going to friends' places, blah, 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 blah. we love to cook. And I found cooking for myself to be quite difficult. Um, and at the same time, I was looking for stories or anything about women in Paris, American women specifically in Paris. And if I could find out about the Black American women, that would be better, but definitely American women in Paris that have moved here for love and it didn't work out. And everything I found was like, oh my God, Jean Francois. <laughs> 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 we live in the six year old small apartment that's 500 square meters, and we just bought a country house in the garage, and the kids were jacquardy. <laughs> my life is on <laughs> And so the divorce wasn't doing it for you because yeah. it's all of that. And like the, the one problem is the divorce, yeah. but like, and, and the fact that there's an old master painting in the balance. Right. And I was just like, this is like, I know so many American women that moved here. Not so many, but at that time in my life, I, I had two, three friends that were going through a divorce from Frenchmen that they had married. Either they met them here or they moved here for them. Yeah. Um, Take so note, they, listeners. Yeah. Nobody else moved to Paris. <laughs> That's That's we're full. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just knew this was a, this was, this was a part of, you know, this was a risk that one would take. What, yeah, this is a risk that comes with moving for love. And no one was talking about what happens if that love doesn't work out and you decide to stay. So I was like, shit, I'm going to fucking talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't have a discipline for a blog. <laughs> and I'm really bad at taking photos. So like, how can I, how can I, you know. An audio medium. Yeah. That's, how, how That's where I will shine. <laughs> Every episode, I make a meal as I'm talking about whatever the topic is. So I'm making a meal and drinking wine, you know, whatever. And what I thought it was, would be really cool is um, have like kind of force people without them realizing to use a different sense that they usually don't associate with food or with dining, which is your ears, which is your sense mm-hmm. of hearing, right? Because we see food, we smell it, we taste it, but no one ever talks about the sound of like the glass mm-hmm. or like the forks or like the chopping. Like no one pays attention to that. It's mm-hmm. like background noise. And I wanted people to really focus on that because that's all they had, right? To imagine yeah. what I was cooking, whatever. So um sorry. So from that, um dinner for one was born and it helped me stop my debauchery. <laughs> and uh yeah, then my memoir. Um, came out and the memoir uh, if you listen to the podcast I think the memoir is great because it kind of 
gives you more background into like where I was in my life that led to me. Right. It fills in the blank spaces. Yeah, following mm-hmm. this friendship. Because I really don't talk about my ex-husband that much on the podcast. Like it's very much as my best friend back home calls the podcast my post-divorce glow up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very, I don't really talk about Shout out to your best friend. <laughs> like, like background. <laughs> That's floor, not a bad sure. podcast title, but it's a better band name. <laughs> I was was <laughs> So when we first met up, you were running a supper club uh, in Paris. This is a theme that I love. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. And so, please follow Satanya on Instagram no. to get so jealous as I do <laughs> all the delicious food you make. <laughs> because hint, only one of us at this table is invited. Yeah, yeah, yeah literally. <laughs> so my supper club, so I signed a supper club in 2022, in February of 2022. It's called the Dinner for One Supper Club because this is a theme here. Mm-hmm. And it is for single women living in Paris to feast on our feminist lives. Because I found, you know, the first year or two I was divorced, I was like, oh my God, poor thing. But then it became like three, four, five years post-divorce. And it's like, I haven't gotten into like a very serious relationship. And a lot of questions around my relationship status, a lot of like great pondering. Why? Oh my God. (laughs) He's still single. (laughs) Off with her head. Um, uh, As my mother would ask, why is nobody picking up at the grocery store? I just want to create a space for single women to just like realize just acknowledge and sit in the fact of like how fabulous and amazing you are especially so i do have some french women that come but for the most part it's mostly been foreigners whether they're american or venezuelan whatever they're from all over the world and just the fact that all of us are here in paris like building our careers like doing our thing like that's amazing and we should not feel bad because we're single like if anything like no one has stepped up to the plate like no one is at you know, the Nevo that they need, that they should be in order to just like be a part of our lives. It's like, feel yeah. Bad mm-hmm. They just, should feel bad about as it. As opposed to some people who settled. <laughs> <laughs> I am this close <laughs> to getting a post divorce blow up. <laughs> it sounds so good. <laughs> it sounds so good to join this band. <laughs> the trouble is, I've already got a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> Kevin, you're safe. <laughs> but seriously? <laughs> I know these women either like through friends or I met them, you know, um, or they're my friends um, and it's, and they don't know each other. So mm-hmm. it's also an occasion for people to meet and some really from what, from the outside, at least looks like, it looks like some really strong friendships have developed that's made me really, that makes me really happy. And once a year I do a big blowout party so like all the guests from all the dinners um, meet at my place and we drink a lot of wine and oh, some of my neighbors. That's and, amazing. And the last amazing. year we were like 15 or 20 in my place. I like moved furniture into my bedroom. Like, so <laughs> Honestly, I had to do that to get four of us in the yeah. same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think that's an amazing like way of forming community yeah. and actually segues really interestingly into this week's topic mm-hmm. because uh, when we were discussing potential topics, uh, one thing that kept coming up was the idea of Paris as a haven, mm-hmm. as like, different foreigners' relationships mm-hmm. with Paris as a city, particularly as a place for artistic creation, particularly for the Black African-American diaspora, uh, which harkens back to last season. So we talked about this a lot in 
the episode about you know, Josephine Baker's love affair with Paris. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, more than a love affair, lifelong love uh, with Paris. And uh, in the Giovanni's Room episode, when we talked about James Baldwin's relationship with Paris, relationships in Paris. Um, but uh, we really wanted to do a deep dive uh, into the different kinds of relationships other creators have had uh, with the city uh, in history. And so Sutanya's picked uh, two really fascinating people to talk about today. So we're going to talk about their love stories, in quotes, uh, with Paris, you know, and like all love stories, uh, you know, I, I'm expecting some high and some low moments. <laughs> <laughs> So I cannot wait. And now it's time for the love story. So this week, Sitania is going to talk to us about the stories of two fascinating creators who uh, lived and loved in Paris. Yes. So as I mentioned, I've been talking about Lois Mylou Jones and Chester Himes. I guess I'll start with Lois. I guess, okay, so the thing that both of these people have in common um, is how the the toxicity and Mm -hmm. the barbaricness, is that a word? Barbarianism? Barbarity? Barbarity. Barbarity, yes. Thank you. Barbarity. I don't know for sure. (laughs) But also four writers. That took us too long. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to pause and have a real (laughs) deep talk. You can say barbarity or barbarism. Barbarism. But I said barbarianism. (laughs) No, you guys, it's like, what's my excuse? (laughs) The barbariousness. Anyway. All the barber. All of it. They were both barbers. Thank you. I love that we took this really intense word and just riffed on it. (laughs) And just inequality of the U.S. and how painful it is um, that, you know, in terms of like race. And it forces you to flee in some ways in order to feel like a human being and have some semblance of a a successful life, Mm. um, even when you've done the right things, right? So as opposed to Josephine Baker and James Alden, and not saying they didn't do the right things, but unfortunately, like their families were um, were not well to do. They were um, they grew up on the poor side. Things were a little different for them. These two people, their parents were middle class. Right. Like um, Lois Milo Jones, her dad was a lawyer. Her mom was a cosmopolitan cosmetologist, owned her own shop. Chester Himes, his dad was a university professor, mm-hmm. and his mom was a pianist and a music teacher who composed the alma mater for. Alcorn State University, and it's still, they're still used to the alma mater today. So these people Ooh. came from educated backgrounds, huh. they're completely middle class, even some could say from upper middle class at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, um, and yet still, just based on the color of their skin, they had to flee the right. U.S. Yeah. just to either be able to do their work or um, just be treated like like human beings. Um, and uh, that just I don't know, just it's something that filled me with rage mm-hmm, when I came mm-hmm. here today. I was like, I'm, I'm full of rage, guys. <laughs> it filled me with rage and it just, um, it made me really sad for them. Um, and Chester had more of a like, Chester, like I know him, Mr. Hines. <laughs> when, you, when you say that though, I hear Hines and I'm just like, Gregory. I can tell your parents are immigrants. Like oh, yeah. Mr. Hines. Yeah, Mr. Hines. <laughs> like, <laughs> moms are like, <laughs> Sorry, I went to Montessori school, so I'm going to be calling him Greggy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know how to speak to authority figures. 
uh, before anything else, can we just uh, quickly situate us in terms of time? Like, what era are we talking about? This is uh, so. Um, this is the tw uh, early twentieth uh, century. So we're talking about kind of more Josephine Baker yeah. era than James yeah. Baldwin. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Chester was born in 1909. Mm -hmm. And Lois started her teaching career in the 20s. So she must have been born around the same time. Oh, I, thought was, I thought she was born later. Well, okay. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what you're saying also just very briefly is important too, because I think often, especially now, I feel like we tend to, we tend to equate um, race and class. So we, yeah. we tend to be like, you know, the problem is a money problem yeah, and 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 it's, and it's and even if it's well-intentioned often it's not but even when it is well-intentioned it is i think we're not at a place where we can stop saying no 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 race is its own set mm -hmm. of like hindrances its own set of injustices and then when you add class onto it, it just makes it more difficult this is something i think that was very prevalent in say the 80s and 90s absolutely among say I don't want to say the progressive necessarily. I'm not sure what progressivism even really looked like then, except my mother's friends. That's a different story. Mm -hmm. But like, say, uh, like, say, like a Bill Clinton liberal. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, the the issue isn't race; it's class. Yes. You know, the issue isn't this. It, you know, the, it isn't yeah. isn't racism. It's the fact that you know, et cetera, et cetera. If we put money into education, if we mm -hmm. put money into to this 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 idea that the, these that, that that people were being treated in certain ways uh, because of a system that was easily changed right. rather than a mindset that they also could, you know, be said to have held. Exactly. Sorry, that was, that was one hell of a passive construction. <laughs> Instead of the mindsets that they actually held. <laughs> listen to just a minute, right? Yeah. Like a Br British comedy show, which like people have to speak without pause or repetition for a minute. And um, I reckon that you would be like amazing at it. <laughs> so good, yeah. I mean, would I say anything? No. Would I be able to talk the whole time? Yeah. But would you win? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, my main point of that for when Chris edits this is just, I think that this is a very Bill Clinton era. We can separate race and class. And actually the issue is not that we have, you know, racist feelings, not that America is racist, you know, at like in foundational institutions it's just a class thing you know some people are poor mm -hmm. and it's yeah. it's it's a really fucked up mindset that doesn't consider yeah the history or institutions of the country yeah yeah how systemic it is um absolutely so a little bit i'll give you a quick i'll give you a quick rundown of madame jones mm -hmm. you can ask me all the questions since i'm clearly an expert of course you life. are <laughs> far from it but, um, okay. rachel's already so at the edge of her chair <laughs> She's like, number one, what were their star signs? <laughs> so um, she, from a very young age, she showed an interest in art and her parents kind of encouraged that. So she took art classes at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. She mm -hmm. got her BA in art education from Howard University. And it was while she was at Howard um, that she actually uh, was granted a fellowship to come to Paris. Mm -hmm. Um, so she came to Paris. She arrived in Paris in 1937 on a fellowship with Howard University. Um, and she just started painting outside. She Quickly, though, that's a hell of a year to arrive in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 37, yeah. yeah. She loved it, though. And she would, like, if you... Like, it was good I, then. I, I, I have photos of her painting near the... Okay, let see if I can find it. Um... 
Oh, it's not near the bikini. Oh, yeah, the bikinis are in the background, I think. No, it's on the side. But look, you see photos of her. Uh, oh, great cover image for the episode. It's amazing. So, like, so what? So, there's the Notre Dame in the background, um, and then we have in the foreground her looking off. Like, so we don't see her face. She's yeah. looking towards the Notre Dame. And does she have an easel? Yeah, she has an easel. She's yeah, painting. yeah, exactly. Well, so, and it's interesting because it does look remarkably contemporary. It looks like it's from the six <laughs> contemporary from the sixties or seventies. Yeah, but exactly. Naf was saying that she wasn't. You know, she was surprised by how early on this was. Yeah, um, a little bit earlier, and I think that's because these are. Just like that's such a classic image yeah. exactly it could also i mean it could, could be now like yeah. i mean the, i feel now. that images yeah. of paris like don't change a massive amount apart from the cars a lot of the time and <laughs> the photo we're looking at is a black and white photo yeah. too right which just <laughs> lends itself to that timeless quality and what she loved the most i mean i don't know i don't know this woman <laughs> like what i've what i've read that she loved the most is that she felt like in paris she was able to nurture her talent so mm -hmm. like the fact that she just she could just live freely with her, just the fact that she, she, her talent was appreciated and she could really dig into it without having the, the big monster of race and inequality mm -hmm. being on her shoulders. So did she- And one of her oh, quotes, um, the French were so inspiring. That's what she said about her early years in, in Paris. The people would stand and watch me and say, Mademoiselle, you are so very talented. You are so wonderful. In other words, in other words, the color of my skin didn't matter in Paris. That was one of the main reasons why I think I was encouraged and began to really think I was talented. Which is incredible because you were saying she'd studied in Boston, yeah, which I think Americans, especially like I'm from Wisconsin, think of Boston as a very progressive oh, no. city. No, <laughs> it's interesting they see that, right? Because yeah. it's because of Massachusetts in general and the politics, but even the Kennedys aren't. Sorry, I'm, I'm having my own like spiral now yeah, where I'm no, like, I mean, oh my God, but what does it mean to be liberal in America? But actually Boston's a really interesting city for that because you're right that in terms of historical record, Massachusetts, like the rest of New England was, I mean, it's been you know a long time haven for abolitionists. Um, abolitionism, one of their main bases was from Massachusetts, but in mm -hmm. its contemporary iterations, Boston, I mean, I don't know what you're saying, but for me as a black person, like I always hear about it and I experience it as being a very racist city, mm -hmm. but it's a city that gets credit for being so much more progressive than it actually is. Well, is it the Freedom Trail, you know? Exactly, like exactly, to, precisely. Yeah. You know, like if you're interested in American history, you must come to Boston at yeah. some point, uh, specifically like colonial history in the US, um, but Boston, <laughs> which is so progressive. Absolutely, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, uh, but so in Paris, is she is she continuing to pursue, like is she getting lessons or is she yeah. just, is she painting on yeah, she's own? at the Academy, the Beaux-Arts. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, she's was she selling she's art? Was she, she's okay. just, mostly just painted. Okay. So we've talked just about the Grand École before on the okay. podcast, but they're basically the Ivy League of French universities, mm -hmm. except that they're specialized because university students here specialize from the age of 18. And Beaux-Arts is the fine arts school, uh, which is incredibly hard to get into. Um, and... Uh, really lovely. I mean, I would also recommend the Beaux-Arts as a kind of like, if you're a tourist in Paris and yeah. you can sneak into yeah. the Beaux-Arts somehow, it is Where's one that? of the most incredible yeah. buildings I, I once Paris. sat in on a class. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's a really long story. I was subletting from a woman who went there mm -hmm. uh, when I studied abroad, like in college. And um, so I just got used to going there for parties while she was still here and like mm -hmm. we were sharing her apartment and like her boyfriend was still in Paris and like we became friends, which she didn't love. Separate, <laughs> separate story. <laughs> anyway, and so like the students have like studios yeah. there and they have a lot of shows. And so I just got used to like the, the guards started to yeah. know me. And so I just started like going and like and I found their class schedule. I think at that point it was still on paper, like posted on the walls. Mm -hmm. Um 
I'm not that old. This is just France. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was actually going to say, I bet it's the same way now. Yeah, I would yeah. say it's the same way now. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's amazing, though, because it's like an incredibly beautiful building, which is just treated with absolutely yeah. no respect by the students oh my whatsoever. Oh, so Yeah. It's, it, you, know, you know, you have all this kind of like beautiful we are getting old. stuff. But... <laughs> Like, no, but I, I mean, I love it. Like, I mean, and there's just sort of like, there's writing on the walls everywhere. Right. Statues are being defaced. Like it's, uh, it, it just feels amazing and so vibrant yeah. and you feel kind of something of like what Paris is supposed to be, I suppose, when mm. you're in the Beaux-Arts. Yeah. Um, but, but, but it's a very classic institution. And so it's incredible that she is accepted there, mm. that she is uh, encouraged there, that she's having not, she's not just accepted, that she's flourishing. And she actually produced 40 paintings at the end Wow. Of time in Paris and so she left the U.S. she left not the U.S. she left Paris to go back to the U.S. after outbreak after a year oh okay um, so so at the outbreak of war yeah so that was in so a couple years later yeah so she wasn't here for that long right at the outbreak of the war she she went back to the states with her friend Cecile Celine what is her name Celine okay Celine Target (laughs) who's also a French artist lifelong friends um and she actually got Celine a job Selena, Selena job at Howard University. Um, and that's the idea of just like race and just how just how much it kills your soul as someone that, you know, has had their races used against them, something they can't control is used against them. So Louise Mailu Jones wanted the same recognition in the US that she had in France, right? It only made sense. Of she course. did all this work. She actually um, a book was published, Louis Mailu Jones. Pontier, 1937-1951, so like a, a, a wide range of her work. Um, and so she wanted the same, admir- she wanted just the same acknowledgement, right, and recognition. Yeah. So she started yeah. submitting her work to different juries and to be in different shows, and she was constantly rejected. Can I ask a brief question just in terms of the her career trajectory? So at the time she left Paris, mm-hmm. so you said she had 40 paintings. Yeah, she left Paris 40 paintings. Um, at, at that point, was she still considering herself... I'm um I'm a student and I'm gonna hopefully get into galleries or had she already done shows in Paris? Like where was she kind of in her development? She'd already definitely exhibited in Paris and she oh, considered wow. herself a full-on artist. Whoa, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. And just and to- she, so she's she's been described as the only African American female painter of the 30s and 40s to achieve fame abroad. So she was like, wow. like established. And from like, a young age. Yeah, established like wow. okay. yeah. artists, artists. Yeah, and yeah, to, yeah. to speak oh, just a little bit about the gallery system, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, my first jobs were in galleries. Basically, if you're an established artist, you'll get invited by galleries to have shows, you usually have like a particular gallery that represents you. To be submitting to a juried exhibition is usually, it's like a group show, mm-hmm. which is less prestigious than a solo show, obviously. It's usually, you know, it's, it's a, a jury, usually of fancy people from the art world, curators, things like that, voting on your work. Uh, now, oftentimes, these are done blinded, so you don't know the artist's yeah. name or background or anything like that in kind of the more, uh, let's say, ethical ones. Right. Um, at the time, that was certainly not the case. So she's coming from France where she's had kind of the, like these much larger, like really huge successes in an artist's life, especially a young artist. She's what, in her 20s at yeah, this point? Yeah, 20s, late, late 20s, yeah. Late 20s, right? Yeah, I mean, have nice. like what I'm assuming are solo shows, like in your 20s, even group shows in Paris. That's, that's mm-hmm. uh, and to be a black woman as well. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. But she has this incredible, she has this incredible style that's, 
uh, it's almost built on post-impressionism mm-hmm. um, and appears at first almost like a naive style, like uh, somebody like who like Basquiat who hasn't had formal training and all of this. But then when you look really closely at it, she's playing with perspective. She's playing with mm-hmm. these very traditional things that yeah. she's, you know, it's uh, my father. I remember when I was little, looking at a Picasso and being like, I could do that. And he, was like, he was like, if Picasso wanted to paint you a horse, he would paint you the best fucking horse that you've ever seen. <laughs> but he had to know how to paint a horse to paint these things. And that's exactly what... How they fully were, because I mean, wasn't Picasso <laughs> trying to recapture the spirit of the child? That's like, true. Maybe could, uh... Look, I went to Montessori <laughs> schools. We've established my background. Do you think I did not have children's books about Pablo Picasso? I absolutely had children's <laughs> books about Pablo Picasso. Picasso so it was one of the teachers, okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but to talk about, so to talk about, <laughs> I think at this point, I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to say this deliberately. Let's refer to these people by their first names because we do that for everybody that we talk about on the show, regardless of right. ba- background, um, so, just for ease. Okay. So Lois and Celine are back in the U.S. Yes, Lois and Celine are back in the U.S. Celine actually starts to submit. Um, so Celine starts to submit um, Lois's work under her name, so under Celine's name, so that Lois could, her work could be shown in these prestigious galleries okay. and museums. Um, and, but she would like send Lois the money or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. she got from it, um, any kind of monetary compensation she got from it. Um, was this, sorry, was this after Lois had been sending things in and yeah, getting rebuffed? And, and so, yeah, yeah and so, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, so, <laughs> so 50 years after being forced to hide her, well, essentially lied about her identity at some point. The Corkin Gallery of Art publicly apologized um, to Jones at the opening of the exhibition, The World of Lois Milo Jones. Um, but what I thought was great, and in the in the, um, in the vein of a supper club, her and Celine actually started uh, a salon called The Little Paris Group, where they would invite, twice a week, they would invite local artists to talk about, you know, what they're working on and have ex- an exchange and things like yeah. that. Um, she died in 1998, so it was sort of life. Okay, so, so despite the fact that she only spent, like, a, a short amount yeah. of time in Paris, like, you'd say that Paris, like, stuck with her. I mean, as I well think, as... Yeah, she, and she went back every year. Okay. So she yeah. went back every year until to, until okay. her life. She was in Paris. She didn't make her life there, yeah. so she didn't end up living there in the way that Chester Chester did um, for a couple of years before he moved to, to Spain. But um, she, yeah, went back to Paris every year and was very much a part of, shows up in her work. It's very much, it gave her the confidence, right? I think that I was going to say, I think. To nurture her talent, to become who she is. And that's such a crucial time um, in any young artist's life. I mean, you guys yeah. think back to when you were, you know, say 22, 23. So like last year for me. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I'm yes. looking forward to it coming up. Yeah, um, I, remember, I remember really vividly. Yeah. Right. Um, but like the idea of the encouragement mm-hmm. or lack thereof that you got at that point mm-hmm. and how formative that could be, especially when you understand to some extent Um or maybe you don't. Maybe she doesn't know that. Who knows what she knows or is thinking at any point? If my students are listening, <laughs> stop telling me what Baldwin believed. Um, it just gave her a sense of freedom and stability, which that she yeah. needed. But but also this idea, acceptance. this idea that your work is objectively yeah, good yeah, or yeah. subjectively by people who yeah. matter. Yeah, yeah. But it's but there are barriers. There are structural barriers that are keeping that from being seen yeah. in the United States. Do you know if so you're so you said that she went back to Paris every yeah. year 
Did she work with artists who were based in Paris? I think she was worked she friends with Picasso, with actually. Really? Your, your godfather? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting because he had such complicated relationships with women and such complicated representations okay. and relationships with people of color. I could That's be making say. that up. I could be making that up, but I feel like I'm yeah, gonna... don't give Picasso credit. <laughs> we don't have to. <laughs> they weren't like lovers. This is like the opposite of slander. Like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they... even so, the idea that he'd support a woman artist that as he a support peer, a, a yeah. person of color as a peer, because um, yeah, because I'm also curious while you're looking mm-hmm. if if Lowe's also had kind of collaborations or friendships with Black artists who lived in Paris, right? Like, so she comes here every year. Mm-hmm. Is she someone who, yeah, I guess, does she have an, another community here um, in Paris, I mean, that she is always going back to? Or is it kind of like a solo yeah, venture yeah, for I, I, The only person that came up in my research, it might be limited, is Celine Tarby. I did, however, Chester Hines, he was hanging out with like um, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, like a bunch mm-hmm. of other writers. But she struck me as kind of a a a, a soul, um, like a not a lonely figure, because but someone who was just very focused on her work. Yeah, and I think she also knew that Paris wasn't going to be her forever. Mm-hmm. That she was going to go back at some point. Right. So I think she just came here to work. That's my impression. I could be wrong. That's I, I, think, I think she just came here to work and to get shit done. Interesting for me. I think that 1937 is an interesting date to have been here though as well like because mm-hmm. I, I mean you hear a lot about like Paris in the 1920s and you hear quite a lot about Paris in the 1950s and stuff like that but the you know that it's still kind of like doing its thing kind of right up until but the is Paris outbreak ever of, not doing its thing? I probably not I mean under the occupation I mean okay fight I mean, me, fight me. <laughs> yeah. it was it was doing its thing in a different it was way, doing its thing in a different <laughs> way. Yeah, but I feel like Paris is one of those like resilient cities yeah and in terms you know, of artists, in terms like, of artists like why there's not a you, know, you mentioned um during the josephine baker episode like she was still performing absolutely she was still yeah. i mean you know, but, making that money and you could also see why someone like lois maybe would not like when i when i was researching josephine baker she was a performer in yeah, every way not, right and yeah. and it's interesting to me that yeah. idea of it being kind of like a solitary like a quiet study period for her almost to be in paris every year it's almost like um a vigil that she keeps or, um, yeah, like what you were talking before, refuge haven, right? Like um, kind of returning to these hallowed spaces in the hopes of... And her memories and just, exactly. you know, her inspiration and, and the places where, you know, she, you know, maybe some of the work that she did. And as you made a good point, the fact that, you know, just her personality is very different from Josephine Baker. So mm-hmm. the fact that she's not a, a performer mm-hmm. and also the, also the fact that like, Literally, she wasn't acknowledged until she was in her 90s. There isn't that much about her, unfortunately. And I I was going to say also that I think that sometimes, I think also sometimes um, with, I'm going to say Black people in general, maybe specifically Black women, but Black people in general in kind of spaces that are not really sure, like don't have maybe their own knowledge of like, what do Black people do? The performance thing is really important, right? The kind of, um, I'm making it safe for you. I'm entertaining. I'm shiny. I'm new. I'm don't worry, right? right? And so I think a lot I'm of times, wearing bananas. Literally, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. out of curiosity, because um, I really don't know uh, very much about her art at all. But does she engage with race in the art? Not in a, not in a. I would say, from my mm. interpretation, not in a. I'm making a statement. Mm-hmm. 
at a meeting. <laughs> you know, but I don't think I don't from yeah, from my from what I've seen, it doesn't seem like because if you know, a lot of her paintings are are um the Paris neighborhoods like the TGTM, mm-hmm. the Consulat, mm-hmm. like, like a lot of know, streetscapes. Yeah, like lots like Notre Dame, etc. Um, and then you have paintings, yeah, where she's painting where you have the black people that are the subjects yeah. of the painting. So I just I don't for me it wasn't a, a statement. It was just like I'm gonna paint what I know, what I see. Do you have a do you do you have a sense or do you know why, even though I'm guessing she didn't feel very welcome in the US? She was also, it seems like she was pretty certain that Paris was not going to be her, her home her home either, even though she loved it. Do you know why that was? Like I, think, why? I think family connections. Okay. Whatever. I think it's just like a family. Like right. She's one, she didn't like to the familiar. Her, right? Yeah. yeah. Again, the day, you know, yeah. it's not like yeah. today where we have like FaceTime and internet <laughs> yeah. and all that right. stuff. So I can imagine it's hard for her. Rachel I mean, students, there was there's no WhatsApp. <laughs> okay, right. World Guys. War II, which was a big deal. Right. Um, Facebook had been invented. Yeah, <laughs> but but also, I mean, again, the, the World War II starts in September '39. Paris is occupied by 1940. Yeah, so, true. she leaves. They leave in the 40s. Yeah, this is. Yeah. I, I think. 40s, yeah. You know, no matter how safe you feel in Paris as an artistic community in 1937, the Nazis are coming. Right. Maybe okay. you start to feel less safe. Yeah, <laughs> unless you're oh, Josephine Baker, true Gemini, right. and just like I'm, I'm gonna, gonna buff from France. <laughs> what I'm wondering is because, we, like, this goes back to a comment you made way earlier, but the idea that Chester was part of a community, yeah. you, know, you know, this Black diaspora, this mm-hmm. Black American diaspora in Paris. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know what the Black diaspora in Paris looks mm-hmm. like in, say, the 20s and 30s compared to what it looked like later. Like, I'm more familiar with the idea of it in the 50s. 60s mm-hmm. and, and from then on but um I'm, I'm wondering because also at this point we haven't had you know any decolonization so there's not a, like, like yeah. which is not black american but which is you know african diaspora that ends up in paris later on um like i, I just I, I don't know what paris looks like in terms of black people specifically in terms of people of color well, in terms of different communities out with other black americans that lived here or passing through and he got you home because he, so this is uh chester heights so we're going to go on to now i'll trans i'll trans but lois is fine but you know what you said about you know going back i think this is a good transition because Chester could have gone back too, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. Once, once like, Paris gets your hooks, and yeah, you, you always have to it's back. it's that ex boyfriend. It's uh, the one that got away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so or ex girlfriend. Paris is always a, a woman. That's a, yeah, an ex lover. An ex lover. An ex person. <laughs> Why are we saying ex? We all still live here. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> for them, for them. Be here for a while. Right, right now we've broken up. Uh, Chris, actually, please respect our distance. <laughs> We're, okay. you know. But with that in mind, I think it'd be really interesting to see how that changes uh, in the life of another uh, American yeah. in Paris, say 20, 30 years later. So, Mr. Chester Himes, again, just a bit on petit rappel. Also middle class. Dad was a university professor, mom, pianist, and music teacher. Who- Wait, am I, am I Chester Hunt? Because that's my parents. <laughs> you guys, everyone. Spoiler. Exclusive. Uh, exclusive. Uh, when you hear the rest of this, I hope not. The first time he was confronted with the just the barbarism mm-hmm. of race, um, he was a young boy, uh, 12 years old, and 
he was going to some kind um, a gunpowder demonstration and his wait old, sorry is it what, what's a gunpowder demonstration a gunpowder demonstration sounds very american yeah, I, I guess it's like how i guess i guess a science fair i would say because his brother oh. his older brother who was not much older than him was mixing the chemicals so it sounds like it was some kind of like science wow. school or some sort. anyway he, i can't believe we don't do these anymore he, uh, he was he misbehaved so his mom was like you know sit in the corner like you're you're out of control you're too <laughs> there's gunpowder mixing because it is gunpowder and because his brother is, I think, a couple of years older than him. So, um, right, and they're like, you're a teenager. This is yeah, why. <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately, it exploded. Oh, like, God. Yeah, so that's why I said you didn't want to Yeah, you didn't want this. You were like, don't uh, make jokes. And I was like, joke, so joke, joke, joke. He was rushed to the nearest hospital, which happened to be a white hospital. And <gasps> they refused oh, no. to treat him. So his brother became blind. In his book, The Quality of Hurt, he wrote, that one moment in my life, hurt me as much as all the others put together. I love my brother. I've never been separated from him. And that moment was shocking, shattering, and terrifying. We pulled into the emergency entrance of a white people's hospital. White flat doctors and attendants appeared. I remember sitting in the back seat with Joe. So his brother was Joseph uh, Jr. Is that Joseph Sr. Watching um, everything happening, uh, being enacted in the cars, bright lights. A white man was refusing. My father was pleading. Dejectedly, my father turned away. He was crying like a baby. My mother was fumbling in her handbag for a, hand, for a handkerchief. I hoped it was for a pistol. Mm. So that led him. So, you know. So I can just out of curiosity, where in the States was this? This was in Arkansas. Okay. Yes, wow. this was in Arkansas because then they moved to Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. And then his parents divorced. Yeah. So you can only imagine the trauma within the family, yeah, right? right? So then that led to, so even that said, he still did the right things. He went to university. Or he, went to university. Um, he went to Ohio State University. He became a member of um, Alpha Phi Alpha, which is like one of the top black mm. male fraternities. Well, all fraternities, I mean, like black fraternities right. in the country. Um, he was expelled for being a little prankster. Sorry, I love a prank. I, lo I love a good prank. Mm -hmm. You are just not. <laughs> but unfortunately, at the age of 19, he carried out a home invasion because he was just like, I've never done that. traumatized 19 year old. Yeah. And then he went to jail for seven and a half, eight and a half years, something like that. Excuse for me? a home invasion? Yeah. 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 It's almost like race with them exists. exists. It was supposed to be 20 years. But so it is almost down. like that. Yeah. So it was supposed 20 to be 20 years. years. Yeah. He served eight years of an initial 20-year sentence. I mean, 100% because he's black, yeah. right? It's not because home invasions used to be, okay, yeah, no. I just wanted to, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, talk about formative years. This is yeah. 19 to 27. Yeah. Jesus. So but, did you have, like, details about his, his time in prison? Yeah. He wrote short stories. And have them published in national magazines. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. And so that's why. It's also imagine how good you would have to be. Well, that's all he would do, right? He like, started writing in prison. Yeah, that's I was gonna all ask, he would okay. do, right? Read and write to avoid. And because he was published in national magazines, the earned respect of the guards yeah. and the prisoners. So he was like kept away from like the violence. He was kind of protected wow. because he was like Mr. Smarty Pants. You know, okay. I mean, we'll always have prison. Anything, so like, <laughs> you know, anyone needed to really? like, talk. Mr. Smarty Pants has not gotten me that far in my life. <laughs> Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. His first stories appeared in um, uh, 1931. So has he been like like a lifelong reader who just begins writing? Is there, yeah, you know, is there somebody who like encourages a, mentors? I mean, his parents definitely pushed education and his parents were definitely, I mean, that's academic, right? So you can imagine he's surrounded by books and mm -hmm. other professors and that was a big part of his life. But I think the trauma mm -hmm. 
of seeing what happened, not even just seeing what happened to his brother, happened to his brother, and then also the trauma of race on top of that, and seeing right. how little his life was worth. Right. He didn't want to fucking read. I wouldn't want to read. Yeah. I don't want to do pranks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. so I just, yeah. you know, I guess one could say like his time in prison, his time in prison gave, allowed him to be still in some ways, uh-huh. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. So he's in prison. He's writing, reading, doing his thing. He is released from prison in April, 1936. So why does he get out early? He's he's uh, released on parole to into his mother's custody. There's no details to why. Right. He's just I'm guessing. I would guess probably also his success. Yeah, right? yeah. And his like good behavior. Yeah, yeah. but they didn't want to details. Why was I didn't find any details? Why? Um, so he kept writing part time jobs, um, and while having part time jobs, and that's he's he kind of became friends with Langston Hughes at that time mm-hmm. in the 30s. And uh, like so, is he in Harlem? He's in New York. He's still in. Uh, he's still in Ohio. He's Was Langston Hughes from Ohio? I didn't know that. I don't know actually. I always thought like he's still. I was going to the Harlem. I was going to say, but so I actually don't know if he's from New York. Now that I do, yeah, he's still. I believe he's still in Ohio because after he never lived in New York, he went to LA and he started working as a screenwriter right. and wrote two novels. He's a very prolific uh-huh. Um, and uh, what's crazy about his time in Hollywood. So apparently, according to him, there was a the racism in Hollywood was even was ten times more than he could ever. Um, oh yeah, I mean the first talking film is the is the El Jolson thing, jazz singing. Yeah, in his autobiography. Up to the age of thirty one, I had been hurt emotionally, spiritually, and physically as much as thirty one years can bear. I had lived in the South. I had fallen down an elevator shaft. I had been kicked out of college. I had survived. I had served seven and one half years in prison. I had survived the, the humiliating last five years of depression in Cleveland, and still I was entire, complete, functional. My mind was sharp. My reflexes were good, and I was not bitter. But under the mental corrosion of race, prejudice in Los Angeles, I became bitter and saturated with hate. Wow. wow. Like, can you imagine what happened to him? And so he lost his job as a screenwriter because Jack L. Warner, yeah. Warner Brothers, <laughs> heard about him because he was a good writer, right? I mean, he'd written screenplays, he produced yeah. novels, and said, I don't want no N-word on this lot. Hmm. Wow. It's crazy. It's unbelievable. It's insane. Because this is also an era where novelists with zero talent right like let's like, like a lot of talent as novelists but like let, let's be very clear as somebody with a million dollar film degree these are two very separate types of writing so fitzgerald goes out to hollywood has zero success like is a total failure uh faulkner goes out to hollywood mm-hmm. zero success. but they get these like weekly paid jobs all this there's this quote there's, there's this famous quote uh from early Hollywood where somebody's writing to his brother says, you've got to come out here and be a writer. You're just competing with idiots, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so if you're actually successful, you know, if you're a good screenwriter, it's like gold until you get Jack fucking Warner in there being like, Oh, he's black. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what, actually this, this also feels so, you know, talking earlier about um, black people as entertainment, right? And we've, this has come up a lot in this podcast, right? That often, um, anyone who's not kind of considered, let's say, like in the top tier of society, like in sociability and all that, um, you can be entertainment, but you don't get the chance to own that. Yeah. You don't get a chance mm-hmm. to create that. And so the title of creator is 
is one that's actually really hard won. Like we we tossed around, we tossed around creator, content creator, et cetera. But actually there's something really, people have died and like, you know, like have gone through so much to be able to say, I'm going to create my own story. I'm going to create narratives, right? Yeah. As opposed to being, especially at that time, right? For black performers in, in Hollywood, it is was, tap dancing, blackface. I was actually, I mean, I was actually surprised that he was a, writing a working and successful screenwriter at that time that means yeah. he must have been so fucking good yeah that they exactly. couldn't they couldn't say no right early hollywood is such a strange place yeah, strange it, i mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> by the 1930s say 20 30 years into this industry is a place that's run by you know five or six men who are people of their who are produced by a society that you know, is 60 years past the Civil War, you know, that is still very racist. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) And honestly, like, you know, take out Civil War, substitute something else, that's Hollywood today, right? Like, it's, it's in many ways, it hasn't changed that much in terms of who gets to gatekeep, who gets to own stuff. Just saying yes and no. Right. So at some point during that time, he got married to Jean, a woman, she was a maid, Um, but then he divorced Jean. Just he was also a bit abusive um, towards Jean, and he divorced her in 1952. And um, very quickly after arriving, he decided that he was going to settle here. Um, and he became friends with uh, people like Oliver Harrington, James Wright, um, James Baldwin, sorry, um, Richard White, William Gardner Smith, and he became really popular in literary circles. Actually, Gallimard. Hmm. Publish his books. Like that's his official publisher. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wait. So was he writing in French? No, in English. Okay. Yeah, in English, and I believe it was translated. Yeah, because his, he had a series of detective novels that were commissioned by French publishers. No, okay. And he didn't. I didn't read anything about him being fluent in French before arriving here. Yeah. No, but so. this wasn't. I said we were in trouble. But there, there was briefly like um, a a craze where in France, like they released all these translations of really famous detective novels, but they had to be under a certain number of words. So all those translations yeah. are actually really fucked up because they just were like, <laughs> here's the plot. We can't go above like 30,000 words. Um, and so some of the earliest translations of, you know, like the most famous mystery writers, not just Chester Himes, like they are totally mangled. That's fascinating. Yeah. And they're these tiny copies. It's really, yeah. I, I, I learned about it when I was doing my um, translation masters. It was really <laughs> fascinating. But for American audiences, just to go back to this, I would say that Gallimard is like the prestige yeah. Yeah. for sure. Yeah. French publisher. Yeah. I'd say they're the for equivalent sure. of like Viking yeah. um, or something like that. Yeah, Penguin is yeah. what I would say, right? Sure. Like, and he is living his life in Paris. He meets his second wife here, Leslie, um, who's an Irish English woman um, and she and a journalist. Mm-hmm. So she's an Irish English woman and she's a journalist um, for the Herald Tribune. And mm-hmm. um, she was interviewing him. So then that's how they met and they got in love. Huh. And um, what kind of age is he at this stage? This was in the late 1950s. Um, doesn't give an exact year. So he'd been but he was born in. You said 1909? He was born in 1909. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, and he it's the second marriage, right? No, he yeah. never had any kids, or at least. I guess he knows of her mm-hmm. here. Um, uh, and he had a good couple years in Paris when he suffered a stroke because he also had a bit of an alcohol problem. He, had, he wasn't a, he was a very volatile, I mean, from what I read, he was a very volatile person. Mm-hmm. And not to excuse, you know, there's no excuse for violence and especially violence perpetuated against women um, or anyone 
for that for that matter. And you know, any kind of addiction is is is, is extremely difficult to live with. I can mm-hmm. only imagine. So that can so I can imagine people around you. Yeah. But he's had a tough life. Yeah. And I don't so think this was, man went to therapy. And he's a human. And even if he had if, yeah. like what do we have at this point? Freud and Jung? Yeah. Like, good luck. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. yeah. So in nineteen fifty nine he suffered a stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, which didn't stop him from writing, but it definitely like slowed him down a bit. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, but he still stayed in, he, he was in Paris until the late seventies, early eighties. And then they moved to Spain, yeah. but he would come back to Paris very, very regularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's pretty much considered a celebrity here in terms of in the writing circles, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he would come back to Paris all the time. And it was just a place similar to Lois, where I think he had the freedom and stability yeah. to, to, and also the recognition, right? That's really important. Right. The fact that he was accepted by other writers and he, you know, they, um, I, I found out here that like his circle was, you know, with pol- people in politics, but also creative people. So like he knew Malcolm X, he knew Picasso, uh-huh. he knew, yeah, um, Oliver Harrington, Nikki uh-huh. Giovanni, Langston Hughes, you know, Richard Wright, like, these were his friends, you know, yeah. so he was like, he was a, he found his people here, yeah. you know, and I mean, I didn't come to Paris escaping, um, you know, a bad life or anything, but um, I, I did, I guess I can, looking back, I did come to, or one of the reasons why maybe like the fact that my ex-husband being French and lived in Paris and that being a part of our story, I think maybe a part of me was looking for, I don't know, like just more, it was, it's more than an adventure. I was looking for a place where, even if it's, I didn't even realize that I was looking for a place where I could be me mm-hmm. without the baggage of culture, like holding me down, like my culture and what is expected of me. I feel like there's something about Paris that, and maybe I feel that because I'm a foreigner here, right? And like, I wasn't born here. So like, French people stuff like not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> you think you can yeah. just get labeled under the category of American, foreigner? Yeah, American. Yeah, I, I guess yeah, maybe without even realizing it, I wanted that, or I, I knew that I could, I could only experience that by moving outside of the United States. Paris has very, very much given me that. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I've grown up in a way here that I wouldn't have had I been had I stayed in New York or had I been gone mm-hmm. back after my divorce. I feel like. Similar to what you guys said about Josephine Baker, how she felt about Paris. I feel like Paris has given me so much, like so much. And I have no idea. I'm not, I ain't going to be no spy. <laughs> but isn't that just what a spy would say? <laughs> I'm going to be a very bad spy because I cry at the drop of a dime. <laughs> Same, and I also, good, if but... I think something's a good story, yeah. I'll tell any of my. So I'm not being fine, but I do have a great respect and admiration and love for this city because I don't know. I just feel like it allows people that want it and look for it to just really find themselves. I, I'm thinking a lot as you, yeah, a lot as you're talking about Hannah Gadsby's, like yeah. Zina Nett, like the, the, she she talks about the idea of being human neutral, yeah. you know, like the yeah. straight white man. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if to some extent, I mean, I, I still don't think that Paris is necessarily, especially in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, a place where, you know, where Lois and Chester are necessarily reading as human neutral, but they might have this American label yeah. instead of other labels that that is more neutral, yeah. much more neutral. Or not even neutral, so like respected, right? Yeah, um, and especially, especially artists. 
you yeah. know, the American label so respected. I mean, it's not lost to me that the fact that I'm a Black American woman from New York City living in Paris, my experience is very different if I was a Black woman from Senegal, mm-hmm. even if I was ridiculously wealthy. Mm-hmm. You know sure. what I mean? Like this accent gives me a lot of access mm-hmm. to everything. So that's mm-hmm. not lost on me. Matt said, I am taking advantage of it. <laughs> I feel like honestly, and I write about this in my book. um, I feel like being a Black American in Paris is as close to um, experiencing white privilege that I think Black people ever will in like a European, a Western context. Just for the simple fact of like we are seen, or I don't know if you feel this way enough, Lutin, but like a lot of times I feel like it's like okay, she's an American woman. And then she's black. Mm-hmm. And like in terms of like the access and things I mm-hmm. have, I, you know, I've been able to experience living here. I just feel like I'm not questioned as to why I'm there. Mm-hmm. Why I'm anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like I could sit at any table, I could talk to anybody, mm-hmm. like people are listening to what I have to say, people yeah. care about what I have to say, people want to hear what I have to say, people want me around. And you're a novelty. And I, yeah. De plus, right? Like yeah. you're it's also kind of like, ooh, okay, why are you why are you <laughs> it's about here? <laughs> Yeah, I remember this in my book. I was just like, were, sorry, I, and for a listener's reference, your book is called Dinner for One Afternoon Hour Save Me by Ron Minor, your local bookshop. Lincoln, Lincoln, <laughs> shout out. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, you know, when I was kind of like thinking about this phenomenon of me just feeling really comfortable everywhere, I was like, is this how white people feel? Like, is this how you all feel all the time? Just like existing mm-hmm. without thinking about your whiteness? Yeah. I, I I would say I would say sometimes like I as as a woman no yeah, like I, yeah. I I feel unsafe yeah. in certain spaces yeah, yeah, that's it like that's a that's a separate thing, yeah, a separate um, thing. in in terms of race that's yeah. absolutely a privilege yeah. that uh, still exists yeah. in I think still unquestioned yeah. ways. Yeah. And Chris, wait, Chris, you're saying I'm I'm, I'm really sorry, Chris. Uh, no, I, I I think it's interesting. I'm just thinking about like. So Paris obviously offers like a lot of people who come here a, a, a kind of a form of like a, a different fantasy and kind of you know it's obviously very attracted to attractive to people coming from abroad. But I wonder, do you think that the sort of like that there is a difference in kind to like its appeal to Black Americans to perhaps that it has to say other people who are also drawn here. Um, I I don't know, seeing as I'm not those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I would, I mean, there is this like kind of like fantasy around Paris, right? And there is this kind of like this Paris is, you know, it means so many things for different people. Um, Can I? So I think, but I do think the people. Sorry to cut you off. No, please. But I do think the people that like are able to survive are the people that um, are able to separate the reality of Paris and the people and French culture and whatever, separated from their fantasy and just find that balance. Because of course it's not gonna be like what you see in the fucking movies. Mm. I don't know, I mean, what I don't know, like how is Paris portrayed in British culture? I don't know, how is Paris portrayed in like Australian culture? I don't know, is it the same? Is it seen? And, and the you know, it's, it, it, it is, it is seen as like a, yeah. a refuge for Black Americans because you all hear about the Josephine Bakers, the of the world of, you know, the James Baldwin's, the the Ida uh, Bricktops, uh, the Nina Simone's. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've heard of so many Black Americans that come to Paris and how they talk about it mm-hmm. and how they feel living here and how many of them have made their homes here. And not even just, I mean, you even have, what's his name, Lamar um, 
Oh yeah, Jake Lamar. Jake Lamar. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh, don't know. <laughs> you know, even you know, you have so many not, and you have so many Black Americans that aren't even on the superstar international mm-hmm. level. So yes, that's influenced, I guess, Amer- Black Americans view of Paris. But the other other places, I don't know. I, I I could be wrong about this, but when I think about to go back to what you're saying, Chris, um, when I think about like the UK, for example, or other countries in Europe. The thing about France and Paris, too, is that there was there has been a black presence, a visible black presence, even outside of the black American diaspora. You know, like one of the one of the original writers of the French Constitution is a black man, is someone from Africa who came like that was never going to happen in the U.S., for example. Right. I mean, like, let me why am I even bringing the U.S. to this table? Right. Like, but even so, I just think that also for I would say I think maybe like for black Americans, you come and you actually see black people here. And you see yeah. black people here walking on the same streets as white people. And of course there's racism. It's not to say that, again, we can't say it's enough. France, Paris has tons of racism. It's not a perfect place. Don't come. But um, <laughs> but it's true. We're that, full. <laughs> but I do really think that if you're choosing where to go, there is something about that familiarity, that feeling of, and actually that, I mean, that's, this is a longer story, but like France's history with blackness and with black people, and also with being fascinated with Africa and Africanness mm-hmm. is very different. When I think about Italy, when I think of Spain, especially when I think of the UK, um, their colonial relationships are also very different as well. And that lends itself to it. Like, do you guys remember when we were talking about Josephine Baker and people like white people, white spectators were really into the idea of like wearing animal print, wearing African right. print, right? Like even at that point, right? Yeah. So I think I that mean, also makes a difference. I remember the 2010s tribal print in quotes. <laughs> trends. All, even the tribal tattoos. <sighs> remember when people were wearing like uh, so-called Native American headdresses to oh concerts yes, and festivals? But this is also the this, <laughs> this is also the place where Sally Hemings came with Thomas Jefferson and was yeah. like, um, and didn't the chef come here as well? And he was like, yep. no, I'm yeah. <laughs> and Sally Hemings, I am not getting on that boat. <laughs> Sally Hemings had the same thing. She had the same thing, and we we've talked about doing an episode about her. Except the the issue is, of course, it's about love stories, and we don't want to present that yeah. as a love story. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that might be maybe we do Sally Hemings episode in a Patreon something yeah. like that. But the but but she had children with him. Yeah. I mean, that was mm-hmm. the thing. She wasn't going to leave them. But yeah, but, but but this is a place with a long history of complicated yeah. relationships with different black people of different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, like as you were saying, it's not the same to be somebody from Senegal yeah. even today yeah. as it is to be a black American, as it is to be like a, a black person born in France. Yeah, you yeah, know, exactly. and it's a, and, you know, I think about that. Like I think about that. Like. Um, I stay here, which I plan on it, but like if I have children one day, which I hope to, but it's not too late for me. Um, you know, my kids are no matter who I have children with, they there's a big chance that they will present as black people in this world. Mm-hmm. And what is their experience gonna be like? Being yep. born and raised in France. They're gonna have an American mom, yeah. Yeah. But that's the only thing about mm-hmm. them is gonna be American. Like everything they know is gonna be French and going to French schools. Right. And so yeah. I think about that a lot because it is very different being born here. Unless I ship them off to the US for like 14 years. And come back when you're 20. <laughs> <laughs> and you're very American. <laughs> is that not how you're supposed to do children? Because that sounds great. <laughs> come back when you fully when your grandmother's uh, in a job. I, have a, I don't know if you have any like last thoughts or last words that you wanna say about Chester and Lois. I except that Paris is full. Yeah. <laughs> Paris is full. Um, we have so many bad bugs. Like yeah. so many bad bugs. We're covered. Oh my god! Just look at TikTok. I'm actually covered in bed bugs. Right. We have to keep, <laughs> we have to keep removing them so um, that her mouth is free to speak into the mic. It's disgusting. <laughs> oh. 
Chris hasn't been talking because the bed bugs have got him. So that's what we want you to take away from this story. <laughs> that's um, your takeaway. What I would say about Lois and Chester um, is to just, you know, it may be Paris, it may be, you know, it may be somewhere in the, in the States, it may be London, it may be another city, international city in the world, or like cosmopolitan city, rather. All cities in the world are international if they're outside of the state. <laughs> <laughs> cosmopolitan city in the world. There's the Virgo. <laughs> city in the world but just like find your place you know for Lois and um, Chester and it happened to be Paris and they were able to you know become the people they were meant to be here um, but my big take from the story is yeah find your place and find your people and then everything will fall into place hey 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 she has a podcast <laughs> <laughs> oh yes she does And now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. So this week, Sutanya has some appetizing choices for us. <laughs> so Sutanya, who are we marrying, fucking, and killing this week? So we're either going to marry, fuck, or kill um, dinner for one, dinner at a Michelin star restaurant, or dinner a dinner party. Okay. And buy dinner for one. We do not mean the book that you absolutely must buy immediately or you're dead to us. Um, we do not mean the podcast, which you uh, must be subscribed to, or we will also be murdering you next time. Um, we mean actually dinner for one. These are getting so much more threatening. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So I, who am I going to marry? Obviously, I'd definitely marry dinner for one because that's just my vibe. Oh, I'm all about showing yourself love through food and showing yourself care and affection through the simple act of making yourself a nice meal. It doesn't have to be complicated, but just, yeah, just make What it. would the ultimate dinner for one be? Oh, one. gosh, for me? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, no, no. Is it, is it winter or is it summer? It, it's tonight. It's an odd. Uh, so we're not here. <laughs> I would probably do agnolotti, homemade agnolotti, stuffed with pumpkin and ricotta. And I would do a braised, uh, uh, like spiced braised short rib ragu. Oh my God. That sounds fucking amazing. <laughs> That's what I do. Are we invited? Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> and that that would be the main. I don't think I would do any um, appetizer. Maybe I just have, have some wine and some cooking. Maybe like chop, chop, you oh know, nacho some cheese. That and is dessert. a life partner right there. <laughs> uh, we haven't even gotten to dessert. Oh my dessert, God. I probably do. If I didn't bake anything ahead of time, I probably do like a creme brulee or something. Ooh. If I didn't want to bake anything, I probably do a creme brulee. Or if I were to bake something, it would be some kind of like stone not stone fruit some kind of tart like a like a pear tart even at the tart tatang could yeah. be really good like yeah. i've been really wanting to try um to test out uh these like little square things that i want to do which are um apricot and pistachio with like a bit of a like Ooh, almond yeah. kind of like that's the that's 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 Saturday, right? Yeah. 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 I'm going to test that out Saturday. Tomorrow. Um, so that, I think that's what I would 
And okay. then and I drink a lot of wine. Perfect. <laughs> Clearly. And I smoke some cigarettes. Oh. Please. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Um, and so that's dinner for one. Are you into an open marriage? Because <laughs> 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 I have a proposal. I've been watching you and your partner from across the bar. So yeah, so the dinner for one are definitely always marry as well as my comfort. It's something that I can rely on and something that will always be there and never leave me. Um, so marry dinner for one. I would kill 565% Michelin star. <laughs> I love it. Why? I have eaten, I've been lucky enough to eat a few Michelin star restaurants. And while they have been good, don't get me wrong. I just don't. I don't see the hype. Maybe I haven't been to the right ones. I don't know. But I just don't see the hype. Um, I don't understand why there is this, um, how can I say I'm losing my words? Um, Deja, I don't like the way the the the, the staff kind of like fawns all over me. It's just, it's fawns all over the customers. Oh, really I hate weird. that. And I'm sorry, like, I don't want to be hungry. Yeah. That's really what it is. Uh-huh. euros or dollars yeah. or whatever. And, like, I'm also sorry. And maybe it's because I cook, right? I'm nowhere near. I can, I can appreciate, I can, I will always acknowledge the talent that goes behind what those Michelin star chefs are able to do. And I will also acknowledge the craftsmanship and the work that has gone into what they do. There's not any old Joe Schmo can mm-hmm. walk off the street and do that, right? Yeah. Um, because I'm someone that does enjoy cooking and um, I get a lot of pleasure in it. I, If I'm going to spend that amount of money, I really don't want my mind to be blown away. Mm-hmm. And like, I just, maybe I just haven't been at the right place yet, but it just, I just have, haven't been that mm-hmm. blown away. I've been more blown away at like, rip, random restaurants in Onzian. That's yeah, it. for yeah. sure. I've been I've been blown away by ran, by restaurants in ZCTM who the yeah. chefs are not Michelin star. They're immigrants from Sri Lanka. Yeah. Yeah. That are cooking this like super cool French food. You know what I mean? One thing I do like about a Michelin star restaurant or a really high end restaurant, I I think I've only eaten in one Michelin star restaurant, but any place that you're going mm-hmm. to where you're going to be spending a lot of money is that I do feel it's it's almost like a kind of like a wager you're sort of like betting the people like that can you make this worth my while can you make it worth (laughs) Mm -hmm. the amount of money that i'm going to spend on it and almost always that's not the case but sometimes Sometimes, when it does work it is like fantastic yeah it's amazing like but i i would still i'm still with you prefix lunch like a like a bargain there used to be the palais the restaurant palais royal would do a 75 euro prefix lunch but that's when they had one star then they got two now it's 150 and i'm like i don't don't mind paying for a good meal right i don't mind paying for food but when it comes to 400 500 euros i just or 350 i just i don't see the point and also for me food is something that it shouldn't you know the the fact that we you know we just we need to eat to survive mm-hmm. as a people, yeah. right? And I, I feel like that shouldn't be something that is um, out of reach. Mm-hmm. People. Like people mm-hmm. should be able to go into a restaurant and have a nice meal if yeah. their budget allows for it. And their budget doesn't have to be, shouldn't have to be 350 euros. Like if right. you have an extra, like, it shouldn't have to be 30, right. right? Yeah. If you have an extra like 30 bucks or 40 yeah. bucks, you should be able to to restaurant eat that said obviously like when it comes to kind of just like supply chain and things are getting more expensive and yada 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 mm-hmm. restaurants going out to eat is becoming more and more of a privilege it's not something that um 
everyone can do, especially if you're family and, you know, just depending on your life in general. But I just don't like this idea of food being inaccessible and out of reach. And uh, and it's so funny because I think one of the other reasons why I feel like I became a Michelin star is that these men, these, usually they're men, unfortunately, but these people are paid so much money compared to, you know, they're like the face of the restaurant, mm-hmm. whatever, compared to people that are actually doing the work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I saw um, an ad for a job in a restaurant, I'm not going to say, or in the hospitality industry, I'm not going to say where, what it was, whatever, because I don't want to, I don't listen to like this bitch talking about it. <laughs> but it was so, the, the, the pay was so low, I found it insulting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This person was expected to be work thirty nine to work thirty nine hours a week. Clearly they're gonna work more, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right. They would be on their feet yep. for the entire time they're at work. Right. And you're paying them less than the, the like it wasn't it wasn't even enough to like pay your rent in Paris if you live by yourself for a studio and have any semblance of a life. Yeah. It's insane. like how dare you Yeah. 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 Like I just I don't know. I just find the entire that entire like fine dining thing that's with a lot of prestige uh, with with a lot of prestige job type things though like art galleries it's often the same Mm. things like that the prestige is supposed to be the prestige is supposed to be like to make up for it there is an interesting thing i uh, like i I think we're getting off topic slightly but i think in terms of that is an interesting opportunity for kind of like you know, you, you can be on kind of like very, very low wages, uh, but you can also have like very few qualifications and it's an opportunity to work at the absolute highest end of a thing. 100%. And there is kind of like a chance to work up through the ranks and stuff like that. And there are very few other industries which mm-hmm. offer that sort of thing for people who are just coming into that. So. I totally agree with that, but I think the salary should, should you should yeah. be able to at least live in a decent place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And or enable to pay your rent, yeah, pay your rent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I'd, I'd and like, it, yeah. not if you are, yeah, wor- working at the 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 level that these people are working at in terms of like pressure, in terms mm-hmm. of expectations, in terms of um, time, and yourself, you put into this work, you should be able to pay your rent yeah. the few days you have off, mm-hmm. be able to enjoy yourself, and not be struggling. At the end of the month, and there's no. When I saw this, the the what the um the monthly salary was for this specific job, there's no way in hell someone could live in Paris. Yeah, and even just basically pay their rent and have a life, they would have to live outside of Paris with them, and like double their commute. You know what I mean? Like yeah. all this stuff, and also like imagine if you have a family. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the thing. People have families. You know, like let's say you're a single parent, and like you really like working in the hospitality industry. Like that's kind of your thing. And you're, but you're a single parent, like this less than 2,000 euros a month. Like, mm. Mm. yeah. So with that, then you're going to fuck a dinner party. Yeah, but of course, it's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much fun. It's wild. It's crazy. You don't know what's going to happen. You wake up hungover. You're like, oh my God. It was amazing. You look amazing. Like, the best one night stand ever. You, look best. you always look amazing at a dinner party. Like the vibes are there. Like the, pe- like the people are there. Like everyone's on. Like it's almost like a mini wedding reception. <laughs> you know, everyone's happy to be there because somebody cooked or somebody ordered uh-huh. or something. And everyone's in a good mood and everyone's like hanging out. Everyone's talking and music and cigarettes and wine and uh, and then it's over. Yeah. <laughs> and then if it's not your place, you don't have to clean up, which makes it even better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But if it was your place, sometimes what I've and this is how I know I'm old. Before, when I was, you know, younger, <laughs> I would wake up. I would often wake up after dinner parties and look around and be like, "Fuck, shit." 
And it's like, go back to bed. <laughs> now I Correct response. And I'm like, I literally mopped my floors when I was drunk. <laughs> I do so much drunk cleaning. Like, I can't go to, like, somewhere my subconscious is like, I can't go to a bed. <laughs> and I was like, I, I drunk clean. Like, even my last supper club, like, I woke, I woke up the next day 100% convinced that it was a mess because the girls would leave until, like, 2 a.m. or something. Spotless. And your yoga mat was out. You've gotten like a two hour workout in. Spotless. I was like, I'm, I'm like, there were like a couple of wine glasses left on my coffee table. It's it's genuinely like the best feeling. I mean, I've only it's had it like spotless. once or twice in my life, but I've done that. I mean, most of the time, I'm very much of the um, still. Uh, look at all yeah. those pots and pans. But yeah, like when you when you've done it. Oh, it's just, right. it's, just it's, it's, it's the I, best hangover cure available. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, what an amazing woman you are. Yeah, yeah. I want to like open my window and <laughs> um, to all of Paris. But yeah, marry the dinner party, kill the Michelin star. Marry the dinner for one. Dinner for one, sorry. Marry dinner for one. Look at Orange Cheese. The dinner party. Classic. That's okay. I'll take my nights with dinner for one. I did tell dinner for one not to worry about the dinner parties. I did tell dinner for one not to worry. No threat there. And here I go. Well, I'll tell you what. Maybe we can do like uh, some kind of swinging situation. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna marry some dinner parties that I'm not throwing. <laughs> I would go to a dinner party five nights a week. I'm, I'm, I'm very talky, so you may not understand how much of an introvert I am. I needed a good 15 hours a day alone. The rest of that time, I'm married to my dinner parties. I'm going to other people's houses. I need a reason to put on clothes and makeup. Love it. December night. <laughs> I am there with clothes and makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, yeah. Um, I will fuck a Michelin star restaurant because they remind me of like uh, fancy boys that I'd have one night stands with in my 20s and mm. then not understand why we weren't married. <laughs> um, everybody makes those mistakes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all on the same page. Yeah. Come on. Um, yeah, they're, they're like a, a polo playing jackass yeah. that you, like, yeah. I would, you know, you do it, you're not thrilled about it. Mm -hmm. You're like, that That was Ind Sorry. indulgent yeah. but it did not live up to the hype yeah <laughs> yeah too yeah. much fun <laughs> <laughs> and um i'm gonna kill my own dinner for one look if i could marry satanya's dinner for one <laughs> if i could turn hers into a dinner for two <laughs> i'm in that's not how life works uh even in this imaginary scenario <laughs> so uh my dinners for one uh we probably won't have time to do the tour of my kitchen, but uh, the two burners that I have in there have, are covered in um, junk and have been for months because I don't use them. So uh, if I had to live entirely on food that I made myself, I would have died by now. <laughs> I would I would be wasting away in the corner. So that's uh, so kill it. That's fine. Other people will feed me, be it dinner parties or at Michelin star restaurants. Chris, do you already have yours? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna um, also marry a dinner party because I think that's you know they're also great and I yeah. love a dinner party. I will uh, fuck a dinner for one because um, it like I mean I am probably you know more of an extrovert and I'm always kind of like going out and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But actually, when I take the time and just sort of like 
you know, really, you know, spend a lot of time kind of cooking for myself and stuff like that. That's a like a kind of like a, a great, like, uh, you know, unusual treat. And then, yeah, um, kill um, the Michelin star restaurant for a lot of the reasons that Satania, Satania already listed. So um, I feel <clears throat> very uncreative, but I'm 100% going to copy Satania. <laughs> now, everyone, I'm sure at this point knows I do not cook at all. I don't know how to. I won't learn. Please, no one offer to teach me. I don't want to because I don't need to. <laughs> to the point where earlier tonight, I lied by accident about making a balsamic vinaigrette at my mother's house. And she was like, ooh, I was so <laughs> impressed. I was like, you know how to do that? That's insane. <laughs> but I, I hadn't I was, even done it. <laughs> exactly. Um, but when I'm thinking about marrying dinner for one, I'm thinking getting takeout from my favorite restaurant being in my pajamas, being in the comfort and coziness of my own home and either like watching something, listening to music, read. It just, it's so comforting. And that's so like, I, so marry that, fuck a dinner party for all the reasons you said okay. and kill a Michelin star restaurant because I've been so, dis I, I cannot think of a single meal that I've paid way too much money for. And again, I'm the same, like I, I think all of us, we love food. We're more than happy to pay for great food. I've been so disappointed by how bland, really expensive restaurants have been. Never mind the fact that it's like, you know, a tiny portion and I come away starving and then the bill comes and like, this is ridiculous, right? Like I would much rather go and get a delicious pizza and be so happy and delighted. I mean, all this being said, if there are any owners of Michelin star restaurants for sure. then and you think that you can change our minds, then uh, yeah. we will eat there for free. You know what? <laughs> I am willing to go back on the record and go, you know what? I'm a fuck and I'm going to marry you. <laughs> and that is my solemn vow to the Michelin star restaurant owners out there. Any single Michelin star. I am free for a date after December 9th. I am single until December 9th, bitches. <laughs> And and that was Mary Fuck. <laughs> Thank you so much to Satanya for being on the pod. Everybody needs to buy her book, subscribe to her pod, both called Dinner for One, both incredible. And in terms of the book and the podcast, uh, we're all having open relationships with both of them because they're incredible. Exactly. Incredible. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs> we will see you next week. <laughs>